The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Review. Fops, macaronis, dandies, esthetes. These are all terms that have been used in a number of ways since the 18th century to describe so-called dressy men who have both shocked and fascinated British society. Embracing both overdressing and stylized restraint, dandies often provoked extreme reactions. Dominic James joined Eleanor Evans recently to explore how these men can be seen as a reflection of changing attitudes not only to style, but also to gender and sexuality. We're joined today by Dominic Jaynes, Professor of Modern History at Keele University, whose book is British Dandies, Engendering Scandal and Fashioning a Nation. To start us off, Dominic, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Wonderful. And I wonder if you can bring our listeners into this topic by starting off by explaining what is a dandy? Well, what does this term mean and when did it come to the fore? So the term itself first becomes really popular in the fashionable magazines and newspapers of the time around the first decade or two of the 19th century. The word itself originates sometime in the 18th century and it was used to refer to men who dressed themselves very carefully either as a term of saying, oh, wow, isn't this impressive how well they're kind of fashioning themselves and how they're showing their deportment as gentlemen and all this kind of stuff, or increasingly to say there's something a bit strange about men nowadays, or at least some men nowadays, because they're spending so much time dressing up and admiring themselves in the mirror. So what is it about this time, this society then, that lends itself to men thinking this is a good opportunity to dress themselves this way? So what's really interesting about this period is that it is dominated by a set of massive wars across Europe. These are are the Napoleonic Wars. And it's absolutely 
important for people to be doing their bit for national service. And in the case of men, that tends to mean going in some way into the military. Now, this is also a period when the military is rapidly developing the notion of military uniforms. These are becoming more and more elaborate and specific in order to show not just the differences between being French or being British or whatever else it might be, but also rank and prestige to show that you're an officer and a gentleman, for example. So having a really well-cut military uniform becomes increasingly important to people's kind of status in society. And I think that preoccupation feeds across into off-duty attitudes as well. So, for example, men who were home from the wars often still went around wearing their military dress uniforms. And sometimes men who'd not actually been into the army at all actually started wearing military outfits as well, just to look rather spiffy. So this is the climate in which the dandy craze really takes off. Well, before we go much further then into this proliferation of of this phenomenon, can we talk about a precursor of the dandy, the the macaroni? What can you tell us about them? Oh, yes, yes. Now, they're enormous fun. So I mentioned a moment ago that from the 17th to the 18th centuries, there were a wide range of different terms that were used to describe men who were allegedly rather overfond of their own appearance. Many of these were associated with parodies that appeared on the stage or in print culture. And they often alleged that there was something perhaps a little bit unmanly about this kind of overdressing. Now, one of the terms that was widely used in the middle of the 18th century was the macaroni. And macaroni, well, Where did that come from? Well, some people said that this term came from a certain kind of playful verse called macaronic verse, which is where you play at mixing different languages together and making puns. But most people actually think there's something a little bit more straightforward about this term. It actually refers to pasta. So macaroni, as in macaroni, or as I now discover mac and cheese, is how (laughs) we have to learn to ask for it these days. So pasta in 18th century Britain was a luxury, rather like tea. It was an exotic product that had to be imported or specially made. Now, British people were very proud of their native produce, and this tended to focus on things like beer and also beef. So when you had the sons of rich aristocrats going off to Italy, to do what was known as the Grand Tour, which was supposed to be about admiring classical architecture, perfecting your Latin, and all this sort of thing. But when you have people like that coming back to Britain, not only with some lovely sketches of bits of the Roman Forum and and so forth, but also wearing the French clothes that they picked up in Paris on the way back, and then demanding from good British hostel keepers that they serve them Italian food like pasta, people started to take notice. So yes, this is, this is where the term macaroni actually comes from. Allegedly, young gentlemen from aristocratic families who've gone out to Italy and picked up a taste for 
Italian food and French fashion. And how would one spot a, a fop or a macaroni or later a dandy as well? What are the fashions and styles that typify this um, notion of excess? Oh, right. Yes, absolutely. So the main thing to stress here is that there's a change between the 18th century and the 19th century. The dressy man of the 18th century is, at least in stereotype, associated with excess. It's not just a question of having silk, it's a question of having too bright a colour of silk and too much silk. It's not just a question of wearing, you know, a carefree flower in your buttonhole, it's a question of wearing a whole bunch of flowers in your buttonhole. It's not just a question of wearing a wig, because respectable people wore wigs in the 18th century. It was a question of wearing a wig that was allegedly so high that it was in danger of being blown off in the open air or catching itself on doorways. So this is the culture of the excess uh, with which macaronis were associated. Now, the thing is, for, for us, we think about pasta, we don't think about pasta as being an excessive food. But if you think about it as part and parcel of a kind of luxury culture, you import the wine, you import the pasta, you import the Italian chef to actually make it, uh, then this is also part of kind of consumer excess as well. There is a difference, however. In the Napoleonic period, where you get this new term dandy coming in, the type of dressy man that gets parodied is rather different. Where the 18th century macaroni is dressed to excess, the early 19th century dandies dressed down. And their style was meant to be very elegant, reduced finery. So this would be a little bit like the way that at a certain point in the 20th century, elaborate wallpaper went out and everyone wanted their walls to be white, plain, stark and modern. So the parody of overdressing before the French Revolution turns into parodies of overstylized underdressing afterward. But there's one thing in which the macaronis of the 18th century and the dandies of the 19th century, they both were associated with wearing clothes that were too tight. So the allegation here is that these are men who were very keen to show off their figures. And they did so by basically getting their tailors, because all, all, none of these things are off the peg. They all had to be made for them. Made together a little bit too tight and in ways which were seen as being perhaps a little bit comical. Yes, I mean, you, you can see there are some moments that are so ripe for satire and your book has a number of cartoons and plates where you can just see how these fashions were so easily lampooned. What can you say about how, how then these um, figures uh, th throughout these periods were received by society? Well, that's right. But I, I think one of, the, one of the reasons for writing the book and be wanting to write the book was the fact that there's so much discussion of fops, macaronis, dandies, and uh, as I talk about later in the book, aesthetes in the later 19th century and indeed into the early 20th century. 
that it's not just, you know, the occasional page in a fashionable periodical. It's the equivalent of, you know, the front page of newspapers are being uh, occupied with discussion of dandies and dandyism as a modern phenomenon. So I think what was taking place there was a connection between gender and patriotism because the British, and you know, Britain as a nation is a creation of the, of the 18th century and the union of the parliaments of England and Scotland. The British, which was a new nation in the 18th century, increasingly defined itself as separate and superior to the nations of continental Europe. Now, you couldn't claim, for example, that the weather in Britain was better than the weather in Italy because it wasn't. And it was a little bit difficult to say that the nation was larger and more populous than France, since it wasn't. So what did you do? You focused on a number of things. And one of those things was the notion of virtue, that somehow the British were more virtuous and the Continentals were more kind of vice-ridden. And another thing that was latched onto was the notion of manliness, that somehow British men were inherently better men than their continental counterparts. So what does that actually mean? Well, it means some things which I think we'd be, be quite sympathetic to. In theory, <laughs> whether they were in practice or not, in theory, they looked after their families, they supported their wives, they supported their children. In theory, they took a responsible role in politics. And in theory, they were good at earning money, but judicious at spending it. Now, that set up a whole set of rather high standards. Now, in practice, what happens is that people drank, they gambled, they created scandal, and it was found rather convenient to blame certain groups in society, certain groups who were the spendthrifts, those people who didn't really look after their aristocratic estates, but basically went around, sleeping around, gambling and spending all their money and clothes and fast living. But just like kind of, I hate to say this, but kind of tabloid journalism of the present day, you get two different things. You get the condemnation of these people, but you also get envy. People are fascinated by the thought that someone over there is having rather more fun than they are. So this is why there's so much media fascination. Yes, it's a heady combination for sure. Indeed. So um, you've mentioned a few times this notion of manliness, which becomes tied to the dandy's image and the precursors and indeed what follows. When then do does this idea become more tied to notions of sexuality? So this is a very important topic. And it's quite a challenging one because the kind of categories of sexuality with which people are familiar nowadays, the various combinations of LGBTQ, and those categories aren't really around very clearly <laughs> in the 18th and early 19th centuries. However, people were aware that there were some men and women who were more interested in members of their own sex than members of the opposite sex. And this was a very serious matter in Britain because men who had sexual intercourse with other men were not just regarded as being scandalous, they were criminals. And of course, 
criminalization of homosexual acts is something that extends well into the 20th century and in certain circumstances into the 21st century in Britain. However, Britain also had a track record of some of the most severe laws about this in Europe. I think the reason for that is partly to do with the way in which gender becomes associated with Britishness and virtue. That's something very specific, the way patriotism operated in Britain. But if you were found guilty of having sex with another man, penetrative sex with another man, you could be sentenced to death, and people were, right the way through to the 1830s. So calling someone out as a, well, the term that's floating around in the 18th century is a sodomite, with reference to the biblical city of Sodom, where an angel of the Lord was assaulted by the men of the city and the city was destroyed by fire from heaven. Now, whether that's a sexual assault or not is not entirely clear in the Hebrew, but people in the 18th century thought it was, thought it was a kind of male rape. And sodomy was thought of by the law and by many people in Britain as a form of violent sexual assault. And that was the reason why it was taken so seriously. And that was the reason why, along with murder, rape and all sorts of other things, it was, it was lined up as a potential death penalty offence at this time. Now, what we find is that it's during the macaroni craze of the 1760s and 1770s that newspaper articles start to talk about macaronis and sodomites at, a, at the same time. Now, before this, earlier types of dandy, for example, people called fops, were typically thought of as men who were no good with women, largely because women weren't impressed by men who preened around and <laughs> spent more time looking at themselves than looking at, at the women. But with the macaroni craze, you start to get innuendo that these men are not ignoring the women because they're self-obsessed but they're ignoring the women because they're interested in other men. What seems to have happened is that there were a series of scandals in society involving actors, playwrights, and in one case, uh, an army officer, who were accused of, or actually put on trial for, for sodomy. And that at this time, the term macaroni starts to be applied in the media to pretty much anyone who was a celebrity. And so therefore, anyone who is a celebrity who's associated with sodomy then gets labelled a macaroni. Now, the, why do they suddenly start doing this? Well, I think one of the things that happens is that there's a big panic about the continent, whether the French are going to invade. And attached to that is a panic about Catholicism. Because, of course, the French rather famously um, in the 17th century, 16th, 17th centuries, uh, had swerved away from Protestantism and become champions of Catholicism. So what starts to be said is that the young men who go to Italy and France pick up not only a taste for French, French fashions and Italian food, but also sodomy. So it's alleged... Um, that sodomy is a specifically continental vice. And 
even more specifically than that, it is associated with the Roman Catholic priesthood because they didn't marry. The suspicion being that if men didn't have the, quote, natural outlet for their urges in marriage, that they would turn to other <laughs> sources of pleasure. Right. So the, these ideas then, they do become linked. And there are some accessories, for want of a better word, of, of the dandy that then become sort of uh, social signifiers, I suppose. Um, like, can we talk about the eye, the eyeglasses? I thought that was very interesting. Oh, yes, absolutely. No, so in one of my other books, uh, which is called Picturing the Closet, I basically traced the ways in which men who were queer, or could be alleged to be queer, were depicted or could signal to each other. Now, this is the other side of the equation. On the one side, you've got all this kind of public innuendo about what might be going on. The other side of the equation is maybe there was something going on. So, if you are, um, should we say, a man who is actually interested in other men, how do you, what do you do about that? Well, it's really difficult, bearing in mind criminalisation and the potential of the death penalty and all sorts of other things. Very, very difficult. So I think what people do, they do a couple of things. So one of them is they use literary hints. So you might talk or write or make classical illusions to see whether someone, you know, had happened to have read a bit of Latin or Greek poetry and kind of knew what you were talking about. Well, that's fine, as long as you've got someone who's, you know, like sitting around like me with huge piles of books, but most people don't. So what you do in that case? Well, what you do is you kind of flirt in a very subtle way, hopefully, with how you present your voice how you present your clothes and how you present your accessories. What we're talking about here is the origins of what in the 20th century comes to be known as homosexual camp. So it's basically a set of codes where you can covertly signal to people that there may be something going on. Now, the eyeglasses are a really good example about, of this, and it's something that's picked up in the satirical prints of the day. So the notion of an eyeglass in the 18th century originally was based on the idea of a, um, shall we say, a more mature lady or gentleman whose eyesight is perhaps not what it was, who might need an eyeglass in order to perhaps, you know, read the newspaper or scrutinise a young person across the room or whatever else it might be. Now, the newspapers, when they start talking about the macaroni craze of the young men referred to as macaronis dining together at what they called, what was known as the macaroni club, it was noted that they used eyeglasses. Now, the point about this is, well, why do young men, young, healthy, vigorous British men need eyeglasses? Well, there are a couple of explanations for this. Well, one of them is that they're not actually young and vigorous at all. They're actually sort of degenerate and, <laughs> you know, and actually need it because they're not fine figures of men. So that's one thing. The second thing is that actually it's an affectation, that it's copied perhaps from the notion of learned antiquaries who would use an eyeglass to examine a piece of ancient sculpture or whatever else it might be but that actually they're being used as pieces of affectation to show that you're supposedly learned when you're not. Now, there's another point about this, which is about posing. Now, when you get into the late 19th century and the circles around Oscar Wilde, there's quite a lot of discussion about posing and 
showing off and so forth. But posing and supposing is something that seems to be very prominent around macaroni culture, that you're dressing up in order to be looked at by the kind of people who might like that kind of thing. And you can use your eyeglass rather like women used fans to play with seeing or not seeing other people in the room. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And a lot of those opportunities for gender play basically get shut down, most famously, of course, by the Nazis in Germany. But it also becomes much less socially acceptable in Britain as well. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cashback on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. You mentioned Oscar Wilde there, and I did want to ask about, because you mentioned the uh, aesthete uh, follows on from this sort of uh, develops this dandy, dandy idea, and it does become linked by the public with a very public trial. Um, what happens with, with Wilde? I'm sure people will know his name. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I think the crucial thing to know about him is that he is a mega celebrity at the time. He's someone who is enormously well known, not just simply well known because at the time of his trials in 1895, he was a top ranked playwright and members of high society are rushing to his society comedies and all this kind of stuff. But he's been famous pretty much since he was a teenager. Now, this is quite remarkable because he came from a distinctive upbringing in Dublin. His parents were quite well known in Dublin. But when he arrived in Britain to study at Oxford University, he wasn't particularly famous. What made him famous was being taken on by the promoters of Gilbert and Sullivan's musical comedy Patience, which parodied the aesthetic craze of style and decoration. And he'd been sent on a lecture tour of the United States and dressed up in something that looked sort of like the dandy dress of the 18th century, including silk stockings and knee breeches. During that time, he had generated an enormous amount of publicity and parody for Gilbert and Sullivan. And when he comes back, he becomes an essential element in London's party circuit. 
everyone wants to talk to him. They either want to lionise him or make fun of him. And he rides that kind of period of, of publicity in order to try and make a literary career. Now, gossip starts up pretty promptly about his sexual interests. So you've heard that since the 1770s and macaronis, that being a dandy often gets you associated with homosexuality in Britain. So this starts in the case of Oscar Wilde. It goes into abeyance when he gets married, because a lot of people are kind of saying, oh, well, you know, he's married now and he has children and, well, I mean, you know, he's a bit of a funny type, but nevertheless, you know, clearly just an eccentric rather than a, you know, anything sexually unusual. However, <laughs> what happens is that basically he falls out of love with his wife and in love with a series of younger men with whom he appears rather ostentatiously dining in public in London hotels, where as a top celebrity, he is, of course, immediately noticed by everyone. So gossip kicks off in the London papers about what is going on here. And there is, in fact, quite a lot of pretty blatant insinuation about his kind of um, same-sex passions and interests in the decade before his trial. His trial, it's pretty well known, don't have to go through all the details of this, but basically he tries to win a libel case against the father of his current same-sex passion, uh, who had accused him of being a sodomite. And all sorts of evidence is brought out, which rapidly shows that this is in fact true, therefore he fails in the libel case and he's put on trial for gross indecency. Now the thing about Wilde is that he's known as being one of the great dandies of the age. So what it does in the trial is it really reinforces these associations between queerness and dressiness that have been building since the 18th century. And it means that after his disgrace, after his death, in the first decades of the 20th century, if you want to be a dandy, you can be, but you have to think quite carefully how you do it. And there are some people who struggle to reach a balance between their interest in clothes and their interest in men, for example. And there are others who actually and deliberately use dandy styles in order to stand out. And I think one of the things that in the later section of the book I actually talk about is the phenomenon of the female dandy. And this actually exists through the 17th, 18th and 19th centuries, but it really becomes very prominent in the interwar period with figures like Radcliffe Hall, for example, who basically copy the dress not just of men, but specifically the dress of male dandies in order to create a, a startling appearance, which becomes associated with lesbianism. And how much of these um, conversations and these uh, figures, is there much conversation about what it means for gender at this stage, or is that something that is, is coming much later on? So... Yes, gender very definitely is being discussed in the interwar period. The 1920s, 1930s is a crucial turning point in a whole series of, of, of ways. Women finally 
<laughs> get the vote in um, after World War One, and and then younger women get it at the end of the twenties. And this this is the result of intense contestation about issues of gender equality and equality of opportunities. So people are actively debating and contesting whether men and women are intrinsically different, which after all is the justification of treating them differently. And if they are different, are they different but equal? Which raises other questions. So all of that is being contested. At the same time, categories of sexual difference, which in the 19th century were essentially to be found largely in medical textbooks, like the category of the homosexual, start to be talked about quite widely. So, for example, in some of my other research, I've been looking at the celebrity photographer Cecil Beaton, and he's definitely a dandy. He's also a homosexual, and I can call him a homosexual because that's what he calls himself in his own private diaries. And one of the things that he does when he's at Cambridge as a student is not simply dress up in finery and play around with using makeup, which of course is a tradition associated with women. He also gets involved and, be, and is very interested in cross-dressing. So we have a period in, it's a rather brief period actually, but we have a brief period in the 20s when particularly a lot of younger men and women have opportunities to play with different forms of gender expression and basically try on different identities. Now, unfortunately and tragically, we know that what happens in the 1930s is that the world takes an enormous lurch to the authoritarian right, and a lot of those opportunities for gender play basically get shut down, most famously, of course, by the Nazis in Germany, but it also becomes much less socially acceptable in Britain as well. And so one of the things that, that's quite interesting is that actually it takes a long time for us to recover the same kind of ferment and discussion about gender and sexuality that they were having in the 1920s. And perhaps we've only recently managed to get there again. That, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I want to perhaps um, round off then by saying uh, we see this uh, resurgence of these conversations. Then, but do we do we see dandies today? Does it, is it still, do they still exist? <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. So the, I've got two immediate reactions to that. So one reaction is, yes, of course they exist. Um, so, and this is a question of, you know, do I call anyone out or whatever? But I remember arriving at Brighton Station and the boxer Chris Eubank was there. And there were two chauffeur-driven limos waiting outside. Um, he was dressed in immaculate 1920s plus fours check and cap. And that, to my mind, this feels like dandy behaviour. Okay, it's grand, it's impressive, it's showy, um, doesn't have to be associated with sexuality, right? Okay, but it's definitely dandy behaviour. So yeah, I'm sure people can be dandies. Now, the, but one problem is that it's perhaps rather more difficult to be a dandy nowadays. And let me explain what I mean by that. So in the 18th and 19th centuries, most people well, how can I put this? They were lucky to have clothes, <laughs> let alone clean clothes or fine clothes. 
So actually, if you could pull a bit of money together and put on a fine appearance, you could very easily stand out on a street. But nowadays, I'm not saying that clothes poverty doesn't exist and all this kind of stuff, but actually the majority of people, because of mass market clothes production, can actually dress themselves with a certain amount of style. So how do you stand out? That's more of a challenge. I don't think it's impossible. There are people who do it. But if they are going to do it, they have to think very carefully how they do it and also assume that people will have all sorts of preconceptions about what being a dandy is like. I'll turn that around. So I write on a, a whole range of different things. One of them is dandyism. And I have been in circumstances where I've been introduced. Ah, oh, here's Dominic James. He's written a book about dandyism. And they look at me and they think, hmm, well, you're not dressed very dandified. What's that all about? <laughs> well, OK, I have an answer. Right. So, again, my conception of dandyism is that it's not just about it's not just about clothes. It's not just about an eyeglass. It's kind of a way of being and seeing. And it's a way of performing. And it can be, I think, reliant on a certain kind of irony. You're not just dressing up. You're keeping an eye on yourself and you're kind of running a little bit of an in-joke about how you perform yourself. So... I think from a young age, I, in one way, similar to Oscar Wilde, love playing with words, love talking, love constructing nice, long, complicated sentences, as you've heard, and rather like the sound of my own voice. Now, that, to my mind, is a kind of dandyism. Uh, and so, therefore, I'm particularly delighted to be able to display it via the ideal medium of podcast. That was Dominic James, British Dandies, Engendering Scandal and Fashioning a Nation, is published by the Bodleian Library Publishing and is out now. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. 